Welcome to a special Christmas edition of Faith of Our Fathers. We start with Dr. Donald R. Hubbard, who is senior pastor at the Calvary Baptist Church in New York City from 1976 through 1986. His message is simply Understanding Christmas. One of the things we need to be aware of is that when Jesus was born, he is fully God and fully man, wrapped up in that little baby. Uh, the other night, there was a nativity program on television that my wife and I watched, and we were again reminded when we had the camera focus on the newborn that uh, was pictured before us, that when Jesus was born, here was God's love gift to us and that he is not just a baby, but he will become a man. And more than a man, he is the God-man. And more than just the God-man, he will go to the cross, and there he will die for our sins. So therefore, the, the manger scene, or the infant, becomes the Son of God, who bears in his own body our sin on the cross. So we can't just keep that promise at Christmas time but as to who he is, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and so on. We must link his entire life together, beginning as far as his humanity is concerned in the virgin birth, and then, of course, his glorification, which will come later. When the book of Romans was written by Paul, he has an interesting statement in which he says that we that uh, we are justified by his resurrection. In other words, the death of Jesus indicates that he died for our sins. The resurrection indicates that God accepted that atonement, and therefore salvation is possible but only through Jesus Christ. So therefore from Scripture we understand that we know that Jesus will sit upon the throne of his father David, and that he will rule over the nations. Of course, this is future and looking on, but all of this is wrapped up in the totality of who Jesus is. Uh, from uh, humble beginning or pre-existence, uh, say that Jesus at the right hand of the Father before the Incarnation, he stepped aside as the Kenosis passage in Philippians 2 tells us, and took upon himself the form of man and was uh, died on the cross and then he will come again, and then he will rule and reign. I think the entire Isaiah passage envisages the entire scope of who the Son of Man truly is. And I think something else, too, that needs to be kept in mind at Christmas time. All of those who bitterly object and are hostile to Jesus, along with those who are indifferent or neglecting Jesus, what they do not realize is that someday they will stand before him to give an account. It is, a, it is a tremendous thought to think that how blind our society has become, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate in the flesh and he is Lord of all, and they will stand before him and give an account. It is an awesome truth. And I think Christmas, wrapped up in the way our culture does with bright lights and colored lights and ribbons and all this kind of thing, needs to be aware that in one sense it's a very solemn time because the infant Jesus is, going, is the Son of God who will 
sit on the throne of his father David and will pronounce judgment. It is an awesome truth for me. When Jesus was born, the desire of the people was to have deliverance from Rome. I think what they were looking for was a political king. That is to say, a king that would deliver them politically and militarily from the heels of the hated Roman government that exercised such vicious control over their lives. But when Jesus came, he came preaching the kingdom, but he said, the kingdom is within you. In other words, it is not something that is forced upon people. It is something that comes from within. And this is where the leadership of the nation, the the, uh, Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, strongly objected to Jesus because it threatened their position with the Roman Empire. The other people, of course, just followed the leading of the Pharisees. But when Jesus came, the fact of his demonstrating his deity by the miracles that he performed indicated that the full authority of God was behind him. He did offer the kingdom to Israel, but the leadership refused it. As John says in chapter 1, he came unto his own people, and his own people received him not. Therefore, it helps us to understand that the spiritual kingdom into which we have been born in the new birth, according to John chapter 3, will be realized at some day in the earthly kingdom of which the Old Testament prophet spoke when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together and a child shall play with a poisonous snake and so on. The one shall be realized out of the other. Dr. Hubbard is now being followed by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a Christmas message taken from John 4:19. We love because we were first loved. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, joyous season. Oh, how many different ways men are saying it. But today I want to bring it to you in a message which I call When Love Came Down. For we've come once more to the season when we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one knows whether he was born in December or September, but tradition has hallowed this time of year and tens of millions of people celebrate this birthday as no other birthday has been celebrated in history. With each passing year, our own birthdays dwindle in importance. In February, Americans celebrate the birthdays of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, but they are not observed elsewhere in the world. The day set apart to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ is observed all over the world. At the age of eight or ten years, I took my first train ride. I explored that train from one end to the other. And when I stood on the back platform, I watched the rails come together in the distance and the telegraph poles rush by as though they were competing to see which could most swiftly become a pygmy. All the human race has gone exactly the same way. Even Caesar grows small as time goes by. On that first train ride, I observed another phenomenon as I looked out the window. The telegraph poles close by rushed along. Trees and houses, one or two hundred yards away, walked by. The distant hill crawled by, but the sun remained in the same position. Now through the years, while the little telegraph poles of humankind recede into the distance, The Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
remains ever the same. He grows greater, and his birthday is celebrated like none other in the history of the world. Millions, yes, hundreds of millions of people hail the return of December 25th. Not only because of joyous festivities and happy reunions, but because time has linked that day with eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ, the center of the world's life and hope, began his earthly course among men. Christmas is not like a centenary brought to our attention by a historian, a journalist, or a follower of some special cause. It is a joyous outpouring of reverence and love, which, curiously enough, not only flows from the hearts of those who know Christ as Savior and Lord, but also from a bedazzled world. A news magazine printed the picture of the house of a gangster in a Chicago suburb. It was decorated with 10,000 Christmas lights. <laughs> no merely human name, however great, commands such universal attention. Why is the first coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, thus honored? For our Christmas message, I call your attention to 1 John 4.19, which says, We love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. Here's the answer to our question. The love of Christ enthralls us who dwell in his love, and it excites the desire of the unsaved, for they sense its pressure upon the vacuum in their lives. Men's heads may be won by argument, but their hearts, are won by love, and we love because he first loved. How great that love is can be seen only in the fact that he came. Heaven's eternal word became flesh among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How did this come about? God tells us that this mystery of godliness is great, some thresholds we can never cross. Some things we shall never understand in connection with the Incarnation. How did the Word become flesh? Right now, I'm thinking of a word, and none of my listeners knows what that word is. In the fullness of time, at a chosen moment, I shall speak that word. It will ring in the porches of your ears and will go all the way from your ears to your heart. How your heart receives this word will depend on your nature, how you're educated, what has been your background, and how well you know God. I shall now speak that word, the word that is hidden at this present moment in my life and in my mind. That word is love. Now what was in my mind a moment ago is now spoken. The secret is told. Just as you could not know my thought until I revealed it in a word, so we could not know God until he expressed himself in Christ, the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the more you know of my words, the more you know of my mind. Likewise, the more you know of Jesus Christ, the more you know of God the Father. This is why Christ said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Perhaps you'll object that I might speak or write a word that you could not understand. But if I sit down with you and explain what I mean, I become your teacher. And this is what God has done for us in sending the Holy Spirit. 
He teaches us the word of Christ and gives power to understand the Bible. Because Christ first loved us, he came as the word made flesh. The disciples saw him. They touched him. We read about him. We listen to messages about him. But the Holy Spirit implants his life in those who are God's own. Until he teaches us, we cannot know what God thinks about us. We are sinners, but he loves us. We may read the words of the Bible, but they are foreign until he teaches us the language of heaven. He who first loved us will not only beget us to new life, he will care for us through our child training days until we reach spiritual maturity in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, the knowledge of God's love wins our hearts and causes us to yield to him in glad obedience. The following story, I think, will illustrate this point. In Europe, everyone who attends a university gets the same training in the classics and in the fundamentals of religion. So that whether a man becomes a scientist, architect, artist, or professor, he is only one step away from being ordained to the ministry. In olden times, at least, almost any university graduate could enter the ministry with little further preparation. Now, there was a German pastor who was called away from his little parish in an emergency. There was no time to get another minister to preach for him on the following Sunday. So he turned to a preceptor in the royal house who tutored the king's children there. When he asked the preceptor to preach for him the next Sunday, the teacher said, how can I preach what I do not believe? The pastor exclaimed, what? Do you not believe in God? Yes, replied the other man, I believe in God. Well, the pastor said, surely you believe that we should love him. Oh, doubtless, said the preceptor, we should. Well, rejoined the minister, I shall give you a text to preach on. It is in the words of Jesus, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. So the preacher went away to keep his appointment, and the preceptor studied the text and wrote an outline for his message. This skeptic, this rationalist, made his first point, we must love God, and he gave the reason. Secondly, he wrote down, we must love him with all our powers, in very deed, nothing less could satisfy God. Third, do we thus love God? And his conscience forced him to write down the word, No, we do not. Describing his experience later, he said, Without any previously formed plan, I was brought to add to my notes, We need a Savior. And at that moment, light broke upon his soul. He said, I understood that I had not loved God, that I did need a Savior, that Jesus Christ was that Savior, and then I loved him, and I clung to him at once. On the morrow I preached the sermon, and the third point was the chief, the need of Jesus and the necessity of trusting such a Savior. We love him. Now, if from your heart you can say, I love you, Lord, you're already a new creature in Christ. The natural man does not love God, for Romans 8, 7 tells us that his mind is hostile to God does not submit to God's law, and indeed cannot. Consequently, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. 
he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, 1 John 4.19 shows us that love begets love. We love because he first loved us. A little more than a century ago, Dr. Charles Hodge was professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. He influenced at least two generations of Presbyterian ministers. On the 50th anniversary of his professorship, there was a great celebration to pay tribute to this man of God in his old age. When he rose to acknowledge the tributes, he thrilled the students, the faculty, the graduates, and the visitors by saying, of the hundreds of students who have been connected with our seminary, not one ever spoke to me a single unkind word. Oh, how magnificent. However, all of Dr. Hodge's students could have said with one voice, well, no one in all these 50 years ever heard Dr. Hodge speak a word that was not filled with kindness. His kindness begot kindness in his students, love, begets love. Now what will make me love those around me? The knowledge that I am beloved by God and that I must show love to him by showing it to others. When I know what he has done in me and what he has planned for me, I can love other men, even those who are in degradation because he loves me. When he saves us, he does not see us as we are but as we shall be. We plant a tree in hope and in time it becomes a thing of beauty. When God saved you, oh, you were a forlorn little thing, but God knew you and loved you and knew what he could make of you in Christ. The fact that God can take terrible creatures and make them sons for his glory is illustrated by a parable that was written by John Ruskin. Outside a mill city, the writer came upon a pond filled with sludge that came through the drains from the factories. It was composed of clay or brick dust, which is burned clay mixed with soot, sand, and water. All these elements, Ruskin said, are at war with each other, and they destroy reciprocally each other's nature and power, competing for space at every tread of your foot. Sand squeezes clay, and clay squeezes out water and soot mingles throughout, defiling the whole. Now let us take an ounce of this slime and separate its elements of clay, sand, soot, and water. And let us suppose that each element develops to its greatest value. Ridding itself of all foreign substance, the clay becomes white earth, very beautiful, and fit to be made into the finest dishes for the king's palace. But let the clay alone and it becomes not only white but clear, not only clear but hard. And from the light it gathers lovely blue rays. And in that form we call it sapphire. Now what happens to the sand? It also becomes first a white earth, and then it grows clear and hard. And next it arranges itself in patterns of fine parallel lines, which reflect not only blue rays but also green, purple, and red in greatest beauty. And in that form, we have an opal. Next, the soot is put under pressure and comes out clear and white, the hardest substance in the world. Instead of being black, it now reflects the rays of the sun, and in that form, we call it a diamond. And last of all, the water purifies itself. 
The sun draws it into the sky, and on a cold winter's night, it falls gently to earth in the intricate shapes of snowflakes. And so, from our ounce of slime, we have taken a sapphire, an opal, a diamond, and a snowflake. Now, the Bible says that the whole creation groans and travails in pain, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies, that consummation of all things when God will call the elements back into his energy and breathe them forth in the new creation, absolutely perfect in the new heavens and the new earth. If such transformation can be made in the elements of sludge and slime, what cannot be done with those creatures who were once in the image of God, but who have fallen into sin? What can be made out of me? What can he make out of you? He first loved us. That was the light which shone in the world's darkness on that first Christmas day. He first loved us. That was the power which wrought the change in us so that we became a new creation, partakers of the divine nature. How shall we answer this love? The true answer is that we love. The King James Version renders this verse, we love him because he first loved us. But the Greek manuscripts do not contain the word him. It's not that we love him because he first loved us. But we love the American Revision and the Revised Standard Version correctly translated. We love because he first loved us. And this is a much higher truth. What little mind first rendered it, we love him. It was an orthodox mind that did not love his neighbor, but said, well, we love him, we shall settle for that. But you see, it's possible to be orthodox and to say we love him while you are hating your brother. Such a situation proves that the reality of Christ has never gripped or even touched your life. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. Oh, certainly we love him, and then we love because he first loved us. We love the flowers, the trees, the birds, the wide sky. We love the wind in our faces and the smell of leaves in autumn and of pines at Christmas. We love music and laughter and beauty. We love the dog that nuzzles our ankle and the kitten that chases its tail. We love the working of fine machinery, the best in art and architecture, the patina of time on the ancient cathedral. We love the reflections on a mountain pool and the glory of the alpine snows. Most important, we love mankind. We love our homes, the laughter of children and youth budding into manhood and womanhood. We love our friends. Now, when we understand that he first loved us, we learn to love those who count themselves our enemies and to pray for them. We can love people whom we know about even though we may never have become acquainted with them. We can pray for the bank clerk whose name is spread across the newspaper because he has absconded with stolen money. We can pray for all those who've been overtaken by sin. We can ask the Lord to save them. If they are believers, we're all the more impelled to support them in prayer that they may be restored to a consistent life and witness. As I read the newspapers, I constantly pray for those who are in trouble, for those who are arrested, for the poor girl who has fallen, for the man who's in prison, for the one who's in great trouble.
for the homes that are breaking up, for the emptiness in the lives of those who do not know him. But we must remember, however, that the coin of love has a reverse side, hatred for iniquity. It is written of Christ that he loves righteousness and hates iniquity, and so we must hate iniquity. Indeed, Psalm 97.10 commands us, you who love the Lord hate evil. We must love truth and hate lies. We must be men and women of integrity and come to the aid of the downtrodden, right wrongs, champion the underdog. We must not shrink from touching the hard things of earth. All this will be fulfilled when we love because he first loved us. As we envision the church throughout the world, we love all believers, members of the body of Christ. I have sat in an African hut that was lighted by a candle and worshipped among people of another tongue who listened to the gospel in a language that I could not understand. In Korea, I have loved the believers in their little bamboo churches, which perhaps had an old cracked bell from a church in the United States. I have loved people and worshipped with them in the jungles of the Amazon and in far places all over the world. And, and I love the people who worship in great stone churches, the magnificent, wasteful churches of America. The body of Christ, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. We love our fellow believers because God first loved us. And because he came to Bethlehem as a babe, that he might grow up to manhood and be our sacrifice on Calvary. God is love. And he who dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. Oh, fellow believers, at this Christmas time, give the greatest gift you possibly can. Give yourself and give your love. Give to all round about you. He first loved us, and so it is possible for us to love. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit may take these truths to us, and since thou hast first loved us, that we may know what it is to have our love flower and expand in all places and ways round about us. And we give thee the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald R. Hubbard, followed by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.